So we are um, we're still in our sermon series, If the Church Were Christian. We've got it this week and then next week, and then we're into Advent. So um, this week, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be talking about peace. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the Scriptures say, He will order His angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. May we be blessed this morning by the reading and the hearing of these words of our scriptures. Let's pray. Good morning, Lord. We are thankful. We've given voice to our thankfulness this morning. You've heard how thankful we are for this this community. And we're thankful for this time this place, this moment, these scriptures. And we pray this morning that as we, a gathered community, turn our attention to these scriptures, that you might open our ears, that we might hear. Not necessarily hear what we've always heard. But hear what you have for us. To trust that that your Holy Spirit continues to speak to us. Continues to challenge us. To be like the saints that have gone before us who, who have struggled with what does it mean to call ourselves Christians in the community, and the times that we live in? What does it mean to be a living testimony to the everlasting love that is God that we witness in Jesus Christ? What does it mean? And what does it look like if we took seriously the call to be Christian. 
And so this morning I pray that it would be your words that we hear and that you would hide me behind your cross. Not for the ugliness of the cross, but for the the display of love and grace and mercy. So that we can experience those things and, and joy and peace and justice and righteousness. We pray all this in your most holy and precious name. Amen. So if the church were Christian, it seems that we would value peace over power. In this passage of Scripture, uh, Jesus has offered many opportunities to grab power for himself uh, and and, and the interesting thing is, rightfully so, like, we might read that and we're like, well, he is, like, he, he already is the authority over all of, like, right? But there's a temptation there. And there's a temptation for a power grab that he just rejects. And I'm going to say it again later, but I want to say it again right now. If we think, like, this was easy for Jesus because, well, you know, it's, it was Jesus, at the very end, don't miss the fact that, that the author makes it a point to tell us that as soon as this ordeal was over, God sent angels to tend to him. The lure for power is great. It is, man, it is one of the most powerful poles that we will experience in our lifetime. And as I think about that, and I think about the church, I, I'm reminded of, so several years ago now, um, I, I became very concerned about something. And I, I, had, I had conversations with Denise about it. My concern was this, and it was, bra- it was breaking my heart. I was so afraid Madison was going to be called to ministry. And I know, right? But it's true. Because I, I remember, like, she was one of, she was, if the church doors were open, she wanted to be there. It wasn't like we had to make her be there. I mean, there were Sunday mornings when I was thinking I didn't want to go, Right? And, and so I graciously began to urge her to, to consider other opportunities. And to be honest with you, my concern was this. She had so much joy being part of the community. I was afraid that she would fall victim to the power and the politics of the church and become cynical. Because I can remember the first day that my belief in the purity of the church was tested. And it was a sobering day. I had, um, so just real quick, because some of you, you've heard the story. I mean, gosh, I've been here 10 years almost. 
Uh, some of you haven't heard it, and as you know, if a story's worth telling once, it's worth telling a hundred times. And so, <laughs> anyway, I, I grew up in a Christian home, right? But I, I rejected all of that by about 16 years old, and this is a very, this is the Cliff Notes version, and I became the best I could describe was agnostic. Then, uh, as an adult, I well, got married, and Denise had always been very faithful, went to church, um, but nothing really seemed to stick. Then we moved to Tennessee in 97, and um, I kept getting invited. Long story short, again, we ended up back in church, and I ended up falling in love with Jesus. All right, There's the rapid version of it. So I'm in love with Jesus, and I decide that I want to go to seminary. But I want to go to seminary not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm in love with Jesus. And I want to learn as much as I possibly can about Jesus and about God. And so where do you do that? I, well, I started going to Sunday school classes and, and Wednesday evening Bible studies, and I was like, this is boring. This is, this is very vanilla. And I, I, I was looking for meat, right? And I was getting cotton candy. And so, like, I remember trying to have this huge debate one time about the difference between justification and sanctification with my pastor in a Wednesday night study, and he just finally looked at me and he said, you're slowing down the class. <laughs> and so I was like, well, what do you do? Well, you go to seminary. That's where you learn. And so I went, I went to seminary, not, again, not because I wanted to become a pastor, but because I wanted to learn more about God. And so I did that. And then I was like, well, how do I get a, ch- like, how do I get a job that will allow me to study? Like, that'll become part of my job because it's so hard, right? Those of you that have done it, it is so hard when you uh, have a full-time job, you're, you're trying to be a responsible adult, and you're trying to go back and get an advanced degree, right? It is, like, wicked hard. And so I was like, well, maybe I could find a job that it would be part of my job. Ta-da, I'll work for a church. And so I got a job as a youth minister. I'm a youth minister now, right? And I'm going to seminary, and I'm doing this, and... It was my first experience. It was that moment when I realized that just because we're a church doesn't mean we're going to act like Jesus. And it was hard. And I don't want to go into the details of it because that becomes gossip. But I just want to say that that I watched the church I was serving begin to crumble as the result of a power grab. People had power, and they didn't want to let it go. And and the fallout was anything but harmless. It was was devastating. People lost their jobs over this, right? And, And I watched members of the congregation leave rather than have to endure spiritual and emotional maltreatment from those who are trying to hold on to power at any cost. And and what I witnessed firsthand was what James writes here in chapter 4. This is like, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? you? Don't don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. 
And so a group of people that profess to follow Jesus and therefore call themselves Christians are tearing each other apart because they are all scrambling to grab a hold of power. And they begin to use the, the, the weapons of the world, which are tear down the other people in your community who are a threat to your power. Make phone calls. Send texts. Send emails. If you're really smart, you're good at it, sugarcoating it. I'm calling you because I'm concerned for you. Did you know that so-and-so in the church does this? I'm, I, I ju- I, I can't, I'm just I'm so worried about you. Can I please tell you about how evil so-and-so is? If we truly were Christian, we wouldn't want this type of power. We would be seeking peace. If we didn't get our way, it would be okay. And this is a pattern that I've seen repeated over and over and over again. A small minority of persons long for power and control, and others react passively, preferring an accommodating peace over appropriate confrontation, such that the church's ability to progress and grow is stymied. If you have been in church long enough, has anyone else experienced this? I don't want to see a show of hands. <laughs> but but you, do, you know what, like, do you know what I'm talking about? Even if you're like, no, it's never happened at our church, but I've seen it at another one. All right, good enough. Right? And, there, and there's many, I guess I probably could be any number of reasons why people try to take over and grab power. And it doesn't matter the size of the church. Often there's not financial gain, right? I mean, we're we're scrambling for power within a church and there's no financial gain from it. But it, it seems to happen for no other reason than simply succumbing to the lure of power. And I think what happens is, because before we think it's the members of the church, it's the staff, it's pastors, it's fill in the blank, right? Like we all, we all feel that pull. And I, th- I think, this is like, as I'm thinking through this, to me it seems like what happens is we're given authority, and that authority inadvertently becomes authoritarianism. And, and let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. The original meaning of the word authority is defined, is defined as someone who possesses or possessed a firm basis of knowing and acting. All right, that makes you an authority on something. You, you have the education, you have the expertise, you, you have practiced this enough, right? For example, you will grant a doctor authority to guide and direct your healing because of their expertise. We heard, I mean, we just heard a few moments ago, we're thankful for physical therapy. We submit ourselves to the torture of physical therapists, right? Because we trust in their authority. We trust that they actually know the right things. However, once people are given power to command, they hand on, they, they, they'll hold on to that power even beyond their expertise. Then they become authoritarian 
authorities and keep themselves in, in a position by putting others down. Well, genuine authority augments us, right? Think about this. General, like actual authority, genuine authority actually augments us as persons, as communities. It, it builds us up. Authoritarian authority puts us down, tears us apart. Are we using authority to build each other up or are we being authoritarian and tearing each other down? And not only does abusive power harm the spiritual well-being of its targets, it's also detrimental to those who wield it. A hunger for power diminishes our capacity for appropriate humility. It, it cripples our self-awareness. And it makes, it makes transformation all the more difficult, if not almost completely unlikely. I'm, I'm just reminded of the story of Roger. Do you remember that story? This isn't in my notes, but... I think it's worth sharing. I think it fits. So I was in a position of authority because I, um, I, well, I was in seminary, and I had the job in the church that put me in a position of authority. I was the youth minister. Um, and I was being sent by my church to a conference. And one of the persons that wanted to, come along to the conference. His name was Roger. Does anybody remember this story? Some people do. If you don't remember it, good. You're going to have to hear it again for the first time. So we, we, we were in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, Roger had decided that he, he wanted to come along, but it was really too late because all the hotel rooms in Charlotte were taken. So I, being the generous, kind, loving, wonderful, fill all, all the adjectives in, person that I am. No, that wasn't funny. Um, <laughs> you're all laughing like that was the joke. Uh, so anyway, um, so I offered to allow, to let him stay in my room with me. And he took, took me up on it. And um, it took about, let's see, we were going to be there for, it was like a four-day weekend. So four days, it probably took about 27 minutes for me to realize Roger's got on my nerves. <laughs> right? And, um, and I'm not going to go into, it's not important why Roger got on my nerves. Just know that basically I got to the point where Roger's just existence was on my nerves. You know what I, you know what I mean. Don't judge me. You know. Because right now, some of you are even thinking of somebody. Knock that off, all right? But anyway, so I remember praying, and it was an earnest prayer, right? God fix Roger. <laughs> Amen, right? God fix Roger. But what really needed to be fixed was what, right? It was my heart. My heart needed to be fixed towards Roger. And by the end of the weekend... Uh, I'm honestly, uh, it, I could tolerate him. And so, 
But it, it's hard. It is hard when you, when you see yourself in a position of authority to think that you might actually be the one that needs to change. And sometimes I've wondered if religious institutions, because of their historic emphasis on rules and morality, are especially attractive to persons interested in power and control. And if that's true, a vital focus of the church should be on the appropriate use of our corporate and individual power toward positive ends. Are we lifting people up or are we tearing people down? The church should teach us to use power redemptively to accomplish works of mercy, peace, and reconciliation. So what would it look like if we valued redemptive peace over authoritarian power? I want to read something here. Uh, Philip Gully writes in his book, as he's reflecting on the passage of Scripture that we just read a few moments ago. This is what he writes. For the first several hundred years of the church, Christians believed the ethic of Jesus called them to love and redeem their enemies, not kill them. But what appeared to be a blessing became their undoing. The Emperor Constantine was favorably disposed toward Christians, and they now had a stake in his rule and forsook pacifism to perpetuate their position of privilege. So began the uneasy alliance between state and church, which exists to this day, where allegiance to the former almost always compromises the integrity of the latter. To be an American Christian is to hold dual citizenship, forever feeling the tension between the push of country and the pull of discipleship. The lure of power was an early challenge in the ministry of Jesus. In the fourth chapter of Matthew, what we just read, Jesus is transported to a high mountain and promised great authority over the world's kingdoms if he, would wor- if he will worship Satan. There, in a moment, is captured the great tension between power and integrity. Lest we think the decision for Jesus was effortless, we need only remember the ordeal left him in need of an angel's care. I mentioned that earlier. In the past, when I'd read that famous temptation scene, I tended to marvel at Jesus' willpower without ever considering the emotional and spiritual energy it took for Jesus to retain his integrity. It was never pointed out that the rejection of such power was so exhausting that Jesus required care. It's difficult. To be a Christian, right, we just, we just heard this, is to hold one's citizenship in an alternative community. And it's difficult, right? Especially for us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, Though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So where before, remember we talked about what are the weapons that we use. We tear each other down. We'll we'll create gossip. We'll do everything we can in order to hold on to our power by destroying our enemies. When Paul's talking about our weapons of warfare... We might hear it, right? And some of us, we, we, oh, that's militant language, and it's a little off-putting. 
But then we can remember this, that the weapons of our warfare are peace, humility, kindness, and grace. And while these weapons might strike us as ineffective, it's only because we have underestimated the world-shifting power of good. We're called to be a light of peace in a world dark with hate. And churches should be, in a very real way, laboratories of peace, modeling the principles of reconciliation among ourselves. I'm reminded of the quote that Rick Rios shared with us last week at Table Talks. To separate ourselves from a body of living Christians with whom we were before united is a grievous breach of the law of love. It is only when our love grows cold that we can think of separating from our brothers and sisters. John Wesley. And then maybe then, as, as we try to be that, as we, as we value peace over power, as we commit and believe in the power of good, then maybe we can be a model of peace and reconciliation. And we can invite and equip the world around us, the community around us, Mount Juliet, to do the same. Amen.